0: Good morning. Good morning. If you have your Bible turned to uh, Matthew chapter 18, we're going to continue our series. I love being able to preach two or three, four, five, six times in a row and do a series. It's kind of like i uh, I've always likened it to like a ring baloney, you know? You just cut it off and you can pick it up uh, the next meal and just kind of keep going with it. So <laughs> you'll get that in a minute. A lot of things in my heart this morning even besides the message, just grateful for this church, praying for this church, praying for you. Excited about the new transition you're in, and how God is going to lead you in that. And you know, I just uh, matter of fact, this morning, uh, the young lady that read the scripture, um, I appreciate that. Yeah, appreciate. What's your name? Tina. Tina. Thank you of for that, and that's one of my favorite verses. You know, I discipled men for a number of years, and one of the questions that I would do, as we always would have accountability, and I would say, um, were you in God's word this week? Were you in God's word this week? And I found out for years, I was asking the wrong question. It doesn't matter whether you're in God's word. What matters is, is God's word in you? See, that's the key. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. You can be in God's word and the word still not be in you. So let the word of Christ. So thank you for sharing that. My favorite verse felt right at home when you said that. And I also want to say this. You know, there's a lot of people that work behind the scenes. And uh, I know that you know that, but don't forget, I, I, I am so grateful for children's ministry. I've been able to connect with a couple of the children's ministry workers. They're not up here. They don't get to hear the sermon. Um... You know, when I go over, they're punished longer. Um, You know, but no, they love children. They love the ministry. When you see them, thank them for the investment that they make in the future generations of the church. And uh, another group that's kind of hidden is this group in the back the tech team and I know you've kind of gone through an overhaul with your tech team but I want to tell you I'm very grateful for them. I'm very grateful for them okay they can shut me off anytime they want to and uh, so I'm just really grateful let them just thank them you know there's something about the body of Christ appreciation goes a long way and just letting people know that you appreciate what they do and it's this whole thank you tech team for cuz I know a lot of you are new and you're just You're getting to know things, and I think you're doing a great job, so praise God for that, all right? Well, listen, I better get started, or let's pray together. Father, thank you for your word. It is a lamp to our feet, a light to our path. We want it to direct our steps today, and we want to be open to what your Spirit has to say to the church for your glory and for our good. In Jesus' name, amen. Last week, we began to talk about this, the necessity of forgiveness, learning how to forgive and why it's so important. And I felt it was necessary for us to do that, uh, to lay a good foundation for what we're going to look at today and actually what we're going to look at next week. And that's why we just kind of scratched the service surface last week of Matthew 18. So just review a couple things to kind of get a running start uh, for today's message. Remember we talked about the fact that God gives us the grace to forgive. And that we define grace maybe a little differently. Not only is it God's unmerited favor, but it is God's enabling power. And we need that enabling power. We, We must use it. We must not uh, neglect it or miss it, as the writer of Hebrews 12:15 says, or a root of bitterness springs up in us, and by it many are defiled. We talked about what forgiveness isn't. We talked about what forgiveness is, and we kind of described forgiveness as that emotional releasing of someone who has wounded us, and then the transferring of any responsibility for vindication to God. We clear their record with us, and we just leave it We leave it with God. Because if we don't do that, there are consequences. We talked about those consequences last week. Mental consequences, emotional consequences, physical consequences, and above all, spiritual consequences. And we talked about the inability to love God when we don't forgive and to sense His love. The, 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 the forfeit of confidence and intimacy in our prayers. And maybe the most important is that we don't sense God's forgiveness in our life. When we ask forgiveness for our sins, when we confess our sins, we don't sense that forgiveness because we're holding some kind of grudge, some kind of bitterness, against someone who has offended us. And then we began to look at Matthew chapter 18 and what Jesus had to say about forgiveness. And his teaching, matter of fact, this is the most extensive teaching in all of scripture regarding forgiveness. And his teaching came as a result of a question, if you remember, from Peter, which was really our first point regarding forgiveness. And that was the parameters of forgiveness, verses 21 and 22 of Matthew 18 where Peter comes up to Jesus and he says to him, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? And we said it's possible that Peter was thinking back to his days when he was probably taught as a young Jewish boy by the scribes. The scribes at that time, the Jewish scribes said, you only had to forgive a person three times for an offense. And then after the third time, you don't have to forgive them anymore. And it's possible that uh, Peter was trying to impress Jesus. It's impossible. And let me give Peter the, the, the benefit of the doubt that he was being sincere. He wanted to be genuine, genuinely generous with his forgiveness. So he says to Jesus as many as seven times. Well, I'll tell you, he was absolutely shocked. And so was the disciples at Jesus' response. Verse 22, where Jesus said, I do not say to you seven times, But 70 times 7, or some of your versions say 77. Well, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter whether it's 77 or 70 times 7, 490. The issue, Jesus says, we're not counting. Forgiveness does not count. Peter wanted a limit. You see, we can identify with Peter because how many times do I have to let this person hurt me? How many times do they continue to offend? Where's the cutoff? When when do I don't have to be spiritual with this thing anymore? And that's what Peter wanted. He wanted a limit. When is enough enough? He thought he was being gracious until Jesus said, no, Peter, not just seven times, 70 times seven. In other words, there's the parameters. See, it's unlimited. There's no boundary. There's no boundary. There's no parameters at all on our forgiveness. Now, you know, when Jesus said that, he knew that not only Peter, and not only the disciples, and not only centuries later, those of us who would read those very words would struggle with that concept. And so what Jesus does now is he really begins to answer the question that the disciples, and even us, as we read it last week, have. And that is this, why? Why, why Lord, why? Do we have to have unlimited forgiveness to someone who just continues to wound us or fail us or hurt us? Why do we have to have that kind of forgiveness? And to answer that question and to confirm the statement about the parameters of forgiveness, because that really becomes the foundation of this whole parable and everything that Jesus is going to teach about forgiveness comes from this thing, not seven times, Peter, 70 times seven. Jesus Is going to answer that with a parable to illustrate what he means and to teach us what he means. So let's look at the parable demonstrating forgiveness. So this parable is really in two parts. So we can call it parable 1 and parable 1a. We're going to look at parable 1 this morning, okay, which is verses 23 through 27. So if you have your Bibles, let's look at it. If you don't, I think it'll be right up here on the PowerPoint, all right? So Jesus has just finished saying, I do not say to you seven times, but 70 times seven. And then he continues, therefore. Now, let's stop right there. I know you hate that. You're ready to read and I, go, I get one word. Okay, but it's important word. Circle the word, therefore. Because see, therefore is a transitional word. Whenever you see therefore in scripture, it's a transitional word. Here's what it means. It means that what, what is about to be said is based off from something that has just been said. So you go back and you find out what has just been said so that you can compare it with what he's about to say. Well, what he, has just been, what he has just said is that Peter, no, not seven times, but 70 times seven. And so here's the why. Here's the therefore, all right? Therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. And when he began to settle, one was brought to him, owed him 10,000 talents. And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had in payment to be made. So the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, have patience with me and I will pay you everything. And out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. Now in verse 23, we're introduced to a king. And it's always important when you're reading a parable to try and identify who the players are, all right? And who they represent. So here, it's pretty obvious that the king is God. Obviously, it's God because Jesus speaks about the kingdom of heaven all the way through Matthew 18, the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God. Those are synonymous terms. Okay, Matthew uses the kingdom of heaven because he was talking to Jews and Jews wouldn't mention the name of God. So whenever they would talk about God, they would just put heaven in its place. So like we might say, God bless you, a Jew would say heaven bless you because they always held the name of God to be too reverent to say. So Matthew, which was written for the Jews, will say the kingdom of heaven. Mark, Luke, and John will refer to it as the kingdom of God. They're not two separate kingdoms. They're both the same kingdom just from a different perspective, all right? So this is the kingdom of heaven. It's God's kingdom. It's his rule. He reigns there. He rules over everything. He rules over everyone. Now notice that this king wished to settle accounts with his servants. Please circle the word servants. It's plural. Please notice that. It's the only time that servants will appear. And I believe that the servants here rep- represent all people, all people who someday will give an account of their lives and their deeds to God. The Apostle Paul gives us a glimpse of that in Romans chapter 2, verses 3 through 6, where he says this, Do you suppose, O man, you who judge those who do such things, and yet do you do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? But because of your hard and impenitent heart you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be rewarded. By the way, don't let anybody tell you that in the New Testament God's a God of love and in the Old Testament he's a God of wrath. He's a God of wrath in the New Testament too. Then notice verse 6. He will render to each one according to his what? His works. We read the same thing throughout scripture. Let me give you, I think I put these references on your outline, so you, they're not going to be up here. But let me just read you Job 34, 11. Job says this, for according to the work of a man, he, God, will repay him. The Psalmist David said in Psalm 62, 12, for you, God, will render to a man according to his work. Solomon wrote in Proverbs 24, 12, will he, God, not repay man according to his work? God speaks in Jeremiah 17, 10 and says, I, the Lord, search the heart and test the mind to give every man, and that's plural, the man here doesn't mean male man, it means Humans, okay, mankind, to give to every man, to every person, to every man and woman according to their ways, according to the fruit of their deeds. And then the Lord Jesus himself in Matthew chapter 16, verse 27 said, for the son of man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his father and then he will repay each person according to what he has done. So this is a time of accounting for these servants. Now, the servants here were probably like what we would call satraps. In other words, they weren't bond slaves. They were someone that the king had appointed to be over a section of land uh, or a section of his kingdom. They acted on behalf of the king and they were accountable to the king and there would be times of periodic accountability to the king. How are you doing with my property? How are you handling my money? Well, this was obviously one of those periodic times. And now Jesus begins to focus down and he gives attention to one particular servant in verse 24. When he began to settle, in other words, when, he began to, when the king began to settle these accounts, one was brought to him, that interesting phrase brought to him, very strong in the Greek. It literally means he was dragged there So he already knew he was in trouble. He didn't want to come on his own. He had to be brought. Someone was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. Now you may have read that and you said, hmm, what's 10,000 talents? Well, we don't know for sure. I mean, talents varied from culture to culture. So a Roman talent might be different than a Jewish talent. Plus Jewish talents might be different in one generation than they were in another. But we do know it was a large, large sum. As a matter of fact, I'll tell you how large it was. The fact that the scripture says it was 10,000. See, in the Greek language, the highest number in Greek was 10,000. That's why when you read about angels, it says ten thousands times ten thousands and thousands of thousands. Why? Because they didn't have anything higher than 10,000. That was the Bible's way of saying it's an unlimited number. So here's a man who holds 10,000 talents, and that word is myrias, M-U-R-I-A-S. It's where we get the English word myriads. And myriad is an innumerable or a countless number. In other words, what Jesus is saying, the man owed so much it wasn't even worth counting. There's no bother counting. It's that, that's how great this debt was. Someone has calculated, based upon what they thought the talent was, that a person would have to work 20 years, 6 days a week, 12 hours a day, just to earn one talent. If that's the case, this man owed the king 200,000 years of service to be able to pay off this debt. That is an insurmountable, incomprehensible debt. And verse 25 tells us what the real condition of the servant was. He could not pay. He could not pay. In other words, he was completely bankrupt. He could not have, have paid if he wanted to pay. And the results were devastating. Look at the rest of verse 25. His master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that they had in payment to be made. And that wasn't even going to begin to cover it. And by the way, you say, well, yeah, why well, Jesus is getting a little exaggerated there. No, he's not. This was very common in that time and in that culture. If you went bankrupt, you had to sell your children, you had to sell your wife. You, you, any way that you could make money and you'd go to prison yourself. So this guy was, don't get excited about that, guys. Okay, heard some guys laughing. You sell your wife. No, don't do that. He was completely lost. There's no hope. There's no help. His punishment will be for life because he cannot ever repay. Hold on to that thought. He cannot ever repay. And yet, in his own way, he thinks he can. And he's going to try. Look at verse 26. So the servant fell on his knees imploring or literally begging and that word imploring is in a continuous tense. So it means he just kept begging and begging and begging and begging and pleading and he said this, have patience with me and I will pay you everything even though he couldn't he probably know he couldn't. But what's he going to say? He says be patient with me. I'll tell you what the man didn't need, need patience, he needed mercy. Now some people think that His begging and pleading and all of this here were out of pride. Some people think maybe it was out of desperation. I I don't. I personally think it was genuine humility. I think the man knew he was caught. He was broken. There was a genuine sorrow for what he had done. He just didn't know what to do. And the only thing to come out of his mouth was just be patient with me and I'll try to pay it back. He's trying to convince the king of his sincerity He's promising what he can't do, but he doesn't know what else to say. His intentions are sincere, but his condition was impossible for him to ever remedy. There was nothing that he could do for himself. He's at the mercy of the king, and that's the most amazing thing that happens in this parable. Look at the king's response in verse 27. And out of pity for him, The master, and by the way, master here is synonymous with king. The king is the master because he was the king over his kingdom, but he was the master of these servants, all right? And out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. Three amazing promises or responses from this king. First of all, first response was this. It says he had pity for him. He had pity for him. I love that word pity, splagnizomai. Sounds like an Italian meatball sauce, doesn't it? They just love it. You know what it means? It means to have the bowels yearn. To feel and be moved in your gut with sympathy and with pity. But it goes beyond feeling. This is compassion that takes action. It's not just feeling bad. It's feeling so bad that you've got to do something about it. So what did this king do? Look at the second response. He released him. The NIV says he canceled the debt. Now, I'm going to give you a Greek word. I'm going to tell you how to spell it. And the reason I'm doing that is not because I'm trying to teach it Greek, but you'll see where the connection is later in the service. The Greek word here for released him is apoluo. It's spelled apoluo. You might have write that in your notes. Maybe the only Greek word you've ever written in your life. And it means to free fully, to relieve, to release, to dismiss. In other words, the king released the servant from the bondage the debt had caused. He was no longer going to be a prisoner. He wasn't even on probation. He wasn't even going to have to wear a tether. He's a free man, totally free. Not only that... Notice that he forgave him the debt. That's the third response. He forgave him the debt. Again, I'm going to give you another Greek word. It's a phiemi, aphiemi, A P H I E M I. aphiemi, And it means to send forth or to send away. So here's what the king did he, he, he didn't put him back uh, on a payment plan, he just absolutely sent the debt away. It's no longer a debt. In other words, the man owes nothing because now the debt is gone. There's no guilt that he has to carry. There's no payback plan he has to be on. As a matter of fact, I think we could safely say this. This man, this servant is now freer than he was before he met the king. He didn't just free the man holding him to the debt. He didn't let the man out of prison so he could pay him back. He freed the man of both his prison sentence and of his debt. Amazing. Now let's stop right here and make application up to this point, all right? Because this parable represents living truth for us. We already know who the king is. We know that the king represents God. What was true about this king? Let's look back at this king a little bit. And What was true about him? Well, there's a number of things that were true about him. First of all, he had the right to hold his servant accountable for everything that he did, right? It was his kingdom, it was his money, it was his land. He had given the servant uh, not ownership, but stewardship over it. And, it's, and, the, and the servant knew that there would be times of accountability. So he had the right to hold that servant accountable. The servant knew that. Now, Not only, we also know this is true about the king, that he was perfectly just in the penalty he, penalty he demanded from the servant. He's the king. It's his kingdom. It's his rules. He broke the rules. There's a punishment for breaking the rules. There's consequences. Whatever that is, it was known ahead of time. The king was totally just in what he did. Another thing that we know is that this king acted out of total love and compassion. It was not any kind of obligation to that servant that caused him to act toward that servant with love and mercy like he did that's what we know about the king now what do we know about the servant what was true about the servant well we know that he had definitely wronged the king and he was guilty as charged as a matter of fact you know what's interesting here is when the king approaches him the servant never tries to maintain his innocence servant didn't say to him oh no 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 you you must have that wrong you better go back and check your books I, I didn't do that he never tries to maintain his innocence. He immediately admits his guilt and his wrong. He just said, please be patient with me. I'll, I'll try to get it back to you. He knew what he had done. He knew that the charges against him were valid. Not only that, we know this is true about the servant. That he was totally bankrupt. He was incapable of ever paying off that debt that he owed. We saw that in verse 25. We also know that he was hoping somehow that he could convince the king of his sincerity and of his good intentions. Verse 26, please, please be patient, I'll pay you everything back. Now the big question in this parable is this, because it's very easy to identify God in this parable. But the big question in this parable is who does this first servant represent? And that servant, please get this, represents all true Believers. The servant represents all true believers, us. All of us who were one time wretched sinners who owed God an incomprehensible, incalculable, unpayable debt. And the end results of that debt was eternal damnation in hell because we couldn't ever pay it back. You know why hell's eternal? You know why hell's eternal for people? Because they can't ever pay the debt back. They're in hell, there's nowhere else. So don't believe the Catholic teaching that says you can go and buy someone out of hell or you can go pay for someone to get out of hell. That's not true, the fact is, there is no payment that can be made. It's an incalculable debt and that's why people have to suffer. What is true of the king and the servant in this parable is true of God and us. So how does the parable relate to us up to this point? Well, let's begin with us. Let's start with the servant, okay? Just as the servant was totally bankrupt before God, so were we. Totally bankrupt before God. We were sinners by nature. And by action, we were born sinners and we acted sin out. We committed sin. We owed to God a debt that was totally immeasurable and a debt that was completely impossible to pay off. We are this servant. Now we need to take a journey. I want to just solidify this in our minds. Because I tell you what, there's a lot of screwy teaching going on in the evangelical church today, and all that teaching has to do with how good we are and, and how important we are and how valuable we are and all of this stuff. Well, let me tell you something. We are made in the image of God, but sin marred us. Sin ruined mankind. And so here's what the Bible says: that we are like this servant. Listen, listen to these scriptures. As a matter of fact, you can see them right up here. I'm not gonna have you turn there because I'm gonna give you a bunch of them, okay? You say, are you trying to overwhelm you? Yes. I want to overwhelm you with what God's truth is, okay? I said to someone this morning, I said to our tech guys, I said, I'm sorry, I got a lot of scripture. I said, I do that all of the time. I remember a seminary professor that said, use a lot of scripture that way if you screw up, they'll walk away with something, okay? So that's why I'm giving you a lot of scripture. Listen to what Paul says in Romans chapter 3, verses 10 through 12, and he is quoting quoting from Psalm 14 and Psalm 53. He says this, as it is written in Psalm 14 and Psalm 53, none is what? How many? None. None is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks. There's not a lot of argument left here, is there? verse 12 all have turned aside together they have become worthless no one does good not even one romans 3:23 for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of god romans 5:12 paul says therefore just as sin came into the world through one man that's adam and death through sin and so death spread to how many men All, and that, by the way, men here, plural, mankind, men and women, spread to all. Why? Because all sin. You see, the all all the way through this. Ephesians chapter 2. Listen to what Paul says in verses 1 through 3. He's writing to the Ephesus believers and he says this and you were, past tense, you were dead. You were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind in other words we deserve what everybody else deserved Drop down to a verse 12, Ephesians chapter 2, verse 12. Paul says this, he continues, remember that you were, past tense again, this is what they were before they were saved. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenants of promise. You had no hope and you were without God in the world. In Colossians chapter 1, verse 21, he says, and you who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, what do all these scriptures mean they simply mean this you and I before we came to Christ we were hopeless we were helpless we were hellbound, and we deserved every single bit of it isn't that great news you want me to quit now this would spoil your dinner well let's go back see that's the that's the servant that's us that's what our past was like now let's look at God and let's go back through those same scriptures and see something very exciting so in Romans chapter 3 verse 24 remember verse 23 all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God but then he says in verse 24 and are justified by his grace as a what? a gift, how about that? You stand before God, declared righteous, because it was His gift to you. Not because you earned it, not because you deserved it. You didn't. You and I didn't. It was a gift. As a matter of fact, if you can pay it back, listen, if you can pay God's gift back, it no longer becomes a gift. I mean, you have Christmas, you give gifts, right? Anybody ever say, any of your sons or daughters ever come up and say, Dad, let me pay you back for that gift. No, It's a gift. It's a gift. Look at verse, look at Romans chapter 5 here, verse 15 and 17. If you remember verse 12, Paul said that death had passed upon all men because all has sinned. Now listen to what he says in verse 15 and 17. He says, But the free gift is not like the trespass, for if many died through one man's trespass, Adam, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many Verse 17, if because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. We looked at Romans 6, 23, the wages of sin is death, but finish that verse, you know what? The gift of God is the free gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. We looked at Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 3, that you were dead in your trespasses and sins and you were by nature children of wrath but look at verses 4 through 9 now but God man do I love certain butts in the scripture we were children of wrath destined to hell but God being rich in what mercy you know mercy is mercy is not getting what you deserve Grace is getting what you didn't deserve. Mercy is not getting what you did deserve. And God, I am so grateful that God is rich in mercy because of the great love with which He loved us. Even when we were dead in our trespasses and sin, that says He loved you before you were even saved before you became his son or your daughter. Even when you were dead in trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved, and he raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places of Christ Jesus. How did you look from heaven this morning? This is one of those positional verses, see? In other words, we don't feel it. Did you ever feel being raised up with Christ? Have you ever felt yourself seated in the heavenlies with Christ? But you know what? This is what God declares is true of us, the gift of God. We're no longer in debt to God. Matter of fact, we're not a debtor that's on a payback plan. He has raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in heavenly places. Wow. I can't even fathom this. Verse 7, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Verse 8, which is a very familiar verse, for by grace you have been saved. Through God's enabling power you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It, it, is the, what's the it? It's the salvation and the grace and the faith. All of them are provided by God, not by us. It is the gift of God. It's what the king did for the servant. It was his gift. Verse 9, not the result of works. That's what the servant tried to do. Oh, give me a little time. I'll I'll earn it. I'll pay it back. No, you're not. It's the gift of God, not as a result of of works, so that no one may boast. Ephesians chapter 2, we looked at verse 12, that we were separated from Christ and had no hope, and we were without God. Look at verse 13, but now, there's that but again, but now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Or in Colossians chapter 1, we looked at verse 21, we were alienated and hostile in mind, and we were doing evil deeds. And now he says in verse 22, but he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you, he has presented you and I holy and blameless and above reproach before God, man. God, listen, my friend, God owed you and I nothing but death and wrath and eternal hell. And you want to know why? And he owes it to every human being. And I say, owe it. I don't say just do it. He owes it to every human being. He owes it to every human being without Christ to send them to hell. And you say, man, that seems harsh. That's not fair. You know what? It's interesting how we as believers who are supposed to understand the word of God struggle with judgment and we struggle with hell and we struggle with torment because somehow we think that's not fair. Well, I want to tell you what? It doesn't matter whether it's fair because God isn't about being fair. God is about being just. Fairness is a human concept. Justice is a divine concept. We look at a situation where, oh, that's not fair, that's not fair. God is just. Now, let me tell you what I mean by that. Let's think about this for a minute, all right? What is justice? What is justice? Well, let me help you with this. Let's say that a man sexually abuses a five-year-old child. Do you think that man deserves fairness or justice? We, d- we believe he we deserves justice, right? Matter of fact, we say that. I mean, there's just something about an adult molesting a child that just, I don't know about you, it just angers you inside, doesn't it? And we say, that man deserves justice. Now, what do we mean by that? We mean that man deserves the punishment he gets for the crime he committed. That's justice, right? Now think about that. Even in our legal system, that's how justice works. Think about it from a divine thing. We've sinned against a holy, righteous, truthful, loving, compassionate, just God. And we all deserve, we all deserve his eternal Wrath and punishment in hell now get this if God if God doesn't punish people who deserve the punishment he isn't just and if he isn't just he isn't God and if he isn't God you and I are wasting an hour and a half of our time here every week all right So understand that. When God is just, He gives people exactly what they deserve. And what we deserve is to be separated from Him eternally. What we deserve is to be tormented forever in a place called hell. And by the way, God didn't originally create hell for people. He created it for the devil and his angels. But if you're going to live like the devil... And you're going to live like the devil's angels. That's where you're going to spend eternity. And we're not going to compromise on that. Because God is just. Listen, I never apologize for saying to people that God sends some people to hell because you know what? I am not going to defame God's justice by saying that. People deserve that. Because God is just. We must, listen, Christian friend, we must... Understand and recognize this is what we deserved. This is what we deserved. But in his compassion and in his love, he gave us his son, who gave his life in place of ours and set us free from the prison of sin and death, just as that king set the servant free. Is that not great news? Do you understand? That's the gospel. It's great news, but you can't have have great news until you have bad news. Great news doesn't seem as great if bad news doesn't seem as bad. But if bad news is really bad, then great news seems really great. And the gospel seems really great. when we understand that? That God transferred my debt and he transferred your debt to his own son who received my death sentence. And your death sentence. And he received my punishment and your punishment. You know what the agony of Christ was on the cross? It was not physical. His agony was not physical. I'm not saying there wasn't pain physically. Yes, there was pain. That was not his agony. When he cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's because he had taken on all the sin of the world and the Godhead had to turn away from him. Because he bore that sin. And he not only bore that sin, he bore the torment of that sin. He, he bore in just a few hours everything that people will suffer for all eternity without Christ. Do me a favor. We're not going to be back in Matthew 18 today. Turn to Isaiah 53. I want you to see something. Isaiah 53. And I want you to mark something here, all right? Isaiah 53. And i got to move quicker. This is just exciting to me. I hope it's exciting to you. Isaiah 53, drop down to verse 4. Isaiah 53 is the prophecy of the coming Messiah. Do you know that this, this prophecy was written 700 years before Jesus ever showed up? 700 years. Listen to what the prophet Isaiah writes concerning Christ. Surely, verse 6, surely He has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed we Him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But He, please get this, was wounded, why? For our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. See, if you don't think your sin is that bad, then why did Jesus suffer as badly as he did? Why was he whipped and scourged and beaten and blood streaming out of his side and out of his back and off from the the crown of thorns? If you don't think your sin was that bad, you haven't taken a look at the suffering that Jesus had to do he was wounded. He was crushed. Upon him was the chastisement that brought you and I peace. And with his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep, verse 6, have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him, Christ, the iniquity of us all. Verse 10, drop down to verse 10. It was the will of the Lord to crush him. Wow. He has put him to grief when his soul makes an offering for sin. He shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. And by his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, the Christ, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Wow. Peter summed up Isaiah 53 this way in 1 Peter 3.18. He said, Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous, him, for the unrighteous, you and I, that he might bring us to God. There was no other way to come to God except that way. Paul summed it up like this in 2 Corinthians 5.21. For our sake, he, God, made him, Jesus, to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Now, how did that happen? What was the results of all that? Well, look at Colossians here. And I'm not going to have you turn there. Look at Colossians chapter 1, verses 13 and 14. He, God, has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us. When we exercise faith in Christ, he took us out of the kingdom of darkness and he transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved son. Verse 14, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. I want you to mark those two words. In whom we have redemption. Remember, back in the parable, I wanted you to remember a word, apolu'o. The word redemption here is the word apollotrosis. It is a root of that word. It means to ransom and fold, to free by ransom. In other words, when you and I trusted Christ, we were set free from the penalty of our sin, just as that servant was set free from the penalty of his debt. We are free from judgment. We are free from wrath. We are free from death, just like that servant was free. And it's very important. Listen, Christian friend, it is very important we make that connection between what that, reser- what that servant received from the king and what we receive from God. We have redemption. And then notice the second one, the forgiveness, the forgiveness of sin. And there's the word. The word here is offices. And it comes from that word, aphiomi. That's what I had your mark back in Matthew 18. And it means ascending away, a dismissal, a release. Oh man, I wish we had time to talk about this more. Let me give you a real quickie here. Okay? this refers back to Leviticus 16 and the day of atonement one day out of the year the high priest for Israel all the nation of Israel would gather and the high priest for Israel would be able to go through that veil that separated the holy place from the most holy place. And in that most holy place was the Ark of the Covenant. And the Ark of the Covenant was a symbol, Above the Ark of the Covenant was the cloud that symbolized the presence of God. And nobody could go through that veil. Nobody. Anybody who went through that veil was struck dead immediately by God because you can't come into the presence of a holy God. But one time a year on the Day of Atonement, the high priest could take blood in there. And so what they'd do, they'd get two goats and they'd draw straws, so to speak, and the long straw alone okay? So if you were the goat, the long, strong lost, you are the goat, they'd slit your throat, they'd gather the blood into a basin and the high priest would take that blood and he would go through the veil and he would do this very quickly because he didn't want to prolong being in God's presence very long. He would go through that veil and he would take his fingers and he'd dip it in the blood and he would sprinkle it onto the mercy seat. The mercy seat was the top of the Ark of the Covenant that had the two cherubim angels with their wings pointed toward each other and he would sprinkle that blood and that was the atonement being made for the whole nation of Israel and then he would come out, he'd back up and come out of that veil and then he'd come outside and they had the other goat waiting right there and he would take that goat and he would put his hands on top of that goat's head and he would pray and confess all the sins of the nation of Israel on top of that goat and then they had a man who was assigned with to take a rope and tie it around that goat's net and lead that goat away out into the wilderness, here's a great thing about sheep, they don't have any sense of direction okay, so you lead that goat far enough away he ain't ever finding his way back can you imagine being the children of Israel and watching that goat with all of your sins being preyed on laid on that goat and it's going 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 and pretty soon it's out of sight and knowing this that that goat ain't ever coming back again It ain't ever coming back. Those sins are not going to find its way back into the camp of Israel again. And that's exactly what God did when he freed us. He freed us from the prison of sin. He freed us from the prison of death. He sent the debt of sin out of his sight. And out of our sight, and that's why Jeremiah 31, 34 that we mentioned last week says, I will forgive their wickedness and I will remember their sins no more. Beloved, you are free. You are righteous in the sight of God because your incalculable massive sin has been born by Christ and it's been sent away forever from the sight of God. Fully forgiven, fully forgotten. Now I know what you're asking. You're saying, "Uh, that's really good stuff, but what does that have to do about me forgiving? Well, you will never understand or accept why God instructs and expects you to forgive without limit those who have wounded you, hurt you, offended you, if you do not grasp what we have just talked about this morning. You and I Offended, a holy, righteous, pure, loving God with our sins. But his love and compassion were so great for us that he sent his son Jesus to satisfy his righteous demands of holiness and justice by dying in our place and offering us instead freedom from the consequences of sin, freedom from the penalty of sin, the total removal of the guilt of our debt to Him, full, complete, eternal forgiveness, the release of that debt. And that becomes, my friend, hear it, that becomes the foundation of our being able and willing to forgive others who wound us and hurt us and offend us and abuse us and disappoint us and fail us. And we're going to conclude that next week, God willing. We're going to look at the second part of this parable about another servant. And it's about unforgiveness and the penalty of unforgiveness. And then we'll close with some practical ways to apply forgiveness. But this is a good place to stop, isn't it today? Mainly because I'm out of time. I think all we can say, all we should say, and all we should want to say is what the Apostle Paul said in 2 Corinthians 9.15. Thank you, God, for your inexpressible gift. Amen? Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for the richness of your word. And I know there's been a lot this morning. Father, I know my pea brain couldn't even begin to comprehend it, but that's what we have your Holy Spirit for. You apply spiritual truth to our spiritual understanding. And I pray that we'd walk out of here this morning and walk through the rest of this week with joy in our hearts for the unbelievable debt that you removed from us when we trusted Christ. The overwhelming forgiveness that sent our sins so far away you don't even see them. And Father, that you would impact that upon our hearts as we then learn to become forgiving people. Lord, willing as we see next week, we bless you and thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.